Thomas Edison is famous for his light bulb, the phonograph, the moving picture camera, the rechargeable battery, and to fans of Nikola Tesla, at least, as the villainous antagonist in the Great Current Wars. But that wasn't all he was getting up to in his New Jersey lab. Because in the late 1920s, Edison was designing and building a new device that had one purpose, to speak speak to to ghosts. ghosts. Welcome to the Uncover Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nathan Radke, and joining me today is uh, the mysterious woman that I picked up last night in my car when I saw her hitchhiking on the side of the road during a thunderstorm. You know, it's it's odd. Her her clothes appeared strangely out of date to me, and she asked me if I was sad about Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise breaking up, and if I'd seen the brand new movie Glitter starring Mariah Carey. Anyway, I thought I'd have her on the podcast, and huh, she's vanished weird. And according to this newspaper article I just came across, she died 20 years ago. 20 years ago today. So I guess it's just me on the podcast. Unless you count the invisible entity that just opened all my cupboard doors and wrote the words, get out, on the steam on my bathroom mirror. Lee and I have been researching some heavy material lately. Covert intelligence manipulation, mind control, KGB psychops, the history of Afghanistan. So it's nice to take a break from all of that for a little while and talk about something light and cheerful. The possible existence of ghosts. Because this episode is being recorded in late October 2021, which is the official spooky season up here in Toronto. So that's all the excuse I need to put away my usual stacks of redacted CIA files and grab a Ouija board and some candles. To begin with, it has to be said that there must be something to the ghost phenomenon. It's hard to find a culture from any time period that doesn't include some kind of spirit or phantom in its folklore. When we look at the writings that have survived from ancient Mesopotamia, one of the first human civilizations, we see that ghosts were already haunting the alleyways of our earliest cities, particularly during the summertime when there were celebrations in Duzu and Abu, at which ghosts could return to the earth from the underworld in order to get wined and dined. You can pretty much point at any part of a globe, and assuming you don't hit ocean, you'll hit ghosts. If you put your finger down on Uganda, you'll come across the ghosts of the Banyoro people, who believe that they are disembodied spirits of someone who's died. The Banyoro will occasionally threaten vengeance from beyond the grave by saying, I shall leave you a ghost, which would be awesome last words. If you put your finger down in the middle part of Canada, you might bump into a Witiko, that used to be a Cree person who committed a sin when they were alive and was turned into a terrifying spirit. If your finger lands on Japan, your knuckles will be absolutely crawling with yukionas and chochinobakes, or even a gasho dokuro, which translates into starving skeleton. England is another country populated with a variety of ghosts, poltergeists, specters, ghouls, haunted objects, uh, mostly those old-timey dolls that open their eyes when you sit them up or when you look away from them for just a second. 
The forests of Trinidad are filled with Dwen, the souls of unbaptized children that walk around with their feet pointing backwards, calling at your name. Lee. Lee. Our feet are on backwards. And if you accidentally turn on cable television, you're most likely going to be greeted by the sight of ghost hunters walking around a dark house saying things like, Did it just get colder in here? And, What was that squeaking noise? The ubiquity of ghost legends and stories throughout time and space suggests that the phenomenon of ghosts is a real human experience. However, that doesn't tell us anything about what's behind that experience. In particular, it doesn't tell us that there are ghosts behind that experience. So to try to understand what's going on, we need to first get into a branch of philosophy called metaphysics. Metaphysics is the study of the nature of existence, and claiming that ghosts exist is making a claim about the way the universe works. In particular, the most common way to interpret ghosts is to say that they are the spirit of a person. Therefore, we would need an explanation of the universe that includes spirit. And we do have that theory. It's called dualism. Dualism's well-named because it's a theory that argues that there are two kinds of substance. One is physical matter, the stuff that everything's made of. The stuff that we can touch, the stuff that our bodies are made of, and the stuff that decomposes or burns up after we die. But according to dualism, there's another kind of substance. You could call it mind or soul. A person is made of both of those substances. Look at it this way. From a dualist perspective, every person is a union of a zombie, the physical body made out of matter, and a ghost, the mind or soul, which is made of mind. The zombie part moves through the world, and the ghost part experiences the world. When you die, that's the separation of your ghost from your zombie. Or, like it says in the King James Version of the Bible, you give up the ghost. Since the zombie part of you is made of physical matter, it will start to break down and fall apart, like all physical matter does eventually. But the ghost part of you isn't made of physical matter, according to this theory, so it doesn't have to decay. The philosopher who's normally credited with developing the modern version of this idea is René Descartes, who still gets press 400 years later for his mic-dropping line, I think... Therefore, I am. He argued that the only thing you could be really certain of was that you had a mind. Anything you think about the physical world of matter could be a dream, or a hallucination, or an illusion, or even an elaborate trick. On the other hand, you could be certain that you had a mind, because even if you're doubting that you have a mind, it's your mind that's doing the doubting, so therefore it must exist. Since you could be certain about your mind, but not certain about the physical world, they must be two different substances, ergo dualism. Of course, there's many issues with this theory. It's never really explained how your mind substance could command your physical substance to do things, or how when your physical substance encounters pain or pleasure, that gets experienced by your mind substance, or why when your physical substance ingests alcohol, your mind substance gets drunk. But it does provide us with a framework from which we can understand the idea of the ghost. A ghost could be the manifestation of the mind substance from a person after their physical substance has stopped operating. So let's examine some of the evidence we have for ghosts and contrast the dualistic interpretation that ghosts exist and are made of mind substance with a physicalist perspective that all ghost phenomenon can be explained without actually requiring ghosts to exist. Let's start with the true story of a haunted medical lab. 
An engineer named Vic Tandy had just started working at the lab in Coventry, England. His co-workers warned him that the lab had a ghostly presence and that he should be careful when working there on his own, but Tandy was a person of science and dismissed the warnings as tall tales and local myths. After all, the lab specialized in life support equipment, so there was always some piece of machinery or other wheezing away. Surely the ghosts were just the result of overactive minds turning mechanical noises into something eerie and supernatural. One morning, Tandy arrived early just as the cleaner was leaving. She was clearly distressed and told Tandy that she was certain she had encountered some kind of entity, even though she had been the only person in the lab. The only living person, anyway. Tandy again dismissed this, telling himself that there could have been a mouse or a rat scurrying around the lab, which was far more likely than a ghost. After all, he knew that mice and rats existed. Still, Tandy had to admit there were some odd aspects to working at the lab. Sometimes he would get an unexplained chill, or a feeling of dread would suddenly grip his mind. Once a colleague who was working all the way across the room turned to say something to Tandy, mistakenly thinking that they were sitting right beside each other but there was nobody sitting right beside him. Then, one night, when Tandy was working on his own in the lab, the feeling of dread returned. He was cold, but his body was sweating. A depression started to set into his mind like a fog rolling into a forest. He could hear the familiar creaks and groans from the machinery, but there was something else going on. He felt certain he wasn't alone, despite the fact that nobody else was working there that night. Worrying that there may have been a chemical spill or something that was causing his unease, he checked all the anesthesia containers, but they were all properly and safely sealed up. Tandy poured himself a cup of coffee and returned to his desk to finish his work. As he wrote, he could feel someone watching him, and the hairs on the back of his neck started to stand up. A chill fell over the area, and then, out of his peripheral vision, he saw a figure emerge to his left. It was gray and it glided towards him without making a sound. Terrified, Tandy spun around to face the entity, and as he did so, it dissolved and disappeared. And at that point, Tandy wisely decided to go home for the night. The next day, Tandy had a fencing competition, so he brought his sword to the lab with him. He put the sword in a bench vise so that he could work on it before the contest, and almost immediately, the tip of the blade started to frantically vibrate and wave back and forth. At first, considering what had happened the previous night, Tandy was terrified again. But as an engineer, metal vibration was something he could understand, test, and measure. So he started looking for an explanation for what he was seeing. He moved the vise with a sword in it around the room, and noticed that the vibrations were more severe in some areas than others. It occurred to him that what was moving the tip of the blade might not be his grey phantom, but infrasound vibrations. All sound is caused by vibrations through a medium. Air, for example. Some vibrations are too high a frequency for the human ear to detect. This is why dogs can hear dog whistles and we can't. Some sound frequencies are too low for the human ear to detect. And these are called infrasound, and they lie in the frequencies from 0.1 hertz to 20 hertz. They can be caused by thunderstorms, earthquakes. Um, elephants and whales use them to communicate with each other over really long distances. An infrasound can have some odd physiological and psychological impacts on humans, even though we don't consciously perceive it as noise. It can cause shallow breathing, hyperventilation, blurred vision, increased heart rate, and muscle tension. And there have been case studies of haunted buildings in which occupants had the experience of being watched or of feelings of dread, 
which then turned out to be the result of infrasound pollution. Tandy spoke to the lab foreman who told him that an extraction fan had been installed a few months earlier. When the fan was shut off, the infrasound stopped. And when the infrasound stopped, the ghost was exercised from the lab. This example doesn't prove that there's no such thing as a building haunted by ghosts, of course, but it does show that the very real experience of being in a haunted house could be brought about by natural physical causes, rather than requiring there to be something supernatural and spiritual present. But what about the many people who claim to be able to speak to ghosts? Again, we see this claim across cultures and time periods. One of the most famous examples came from 19th century New York State, when in 1848, 14-year-old Maggie Fox and her 11-year-old sister Kate told their neighbor that every night they heard a series of rhythmic raps coming from their walls and furniture. The neighbor asked for a demonstration, and so the girls and their mother, Margaret, put on a display in the girls' bedroom. Count to five, said Margaret, and the room filled with the ominous sound of five knocks. Count fifteen, said Margaret, and fifteen raps sounded. If you are an injured person, manifest it by three raps, Margaret requested. At this point, understandably, the foxes freaked out and moved out of the house, and the sisters were sent to live with their older sister in Rochester. When word of the haunting spread to the town folk, a group of them allegedly went to the abandoned fox house and discovered what appeared to be human remains buried in the basement. So having confirmation of the sisters' ability to talk to the spirit of a murdered man, Isaac and Amy Post asked the girls for help contacting their deceased daughter. And again, the Fox sisters were able to provide thumps. The Posts then rented out the biggest hall in town and brought 400 people in to hear the Fox sisters communicate with the dead. 19th century New York was sort of primed for something like this. Mystical and spiritual ideas had become very popular based on writings of people like Franz Mesmer and Emanuel Swedenborg. The Fox sisters went on to great acclaim and popularity and started performing three times a day for anxious customers who were desperate to speak with dead loved ones for a dollar a ticket. Amongst the people convinced by the Fox sisters' ability to speak with ghosts was Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes. And Doyle remained convinced of it, even after Maggie Fox made a public declaration in 1888 that the whole thing was a scam and a hoax, and that originally they made the noises by pulling an apple on a string and banging it against the floor, and then learned how to manipulate their finger and toe knuckles to make the rapping noises. Maggie even performed a demonstration. According to the New York Herald, There stood a black-robed, sharp-faced widow working her big toe and solemnly declaring that it was this way she created the excitement that has driven so many persons to suicide or insanity. One moment it was ludicrous, the next it was weird. The toe-knuckle hypothesis does explain why, at a public exhibition in which the Fox sisters had pillows placed under their feet, the spirits had been conspicuously silent. But Doyle refused to believe Maggie's confession, and argued instead that she was lying about not being able to contact the dead. A friend of Arthur Conan Doyle, Harry Houdini, the famous escape artist, disagreed with Doyle and devoted a considerable amount of his time exposing hoaxers and frauds who claimed to be able to speak to the dead. Houdini went so far as to testify as a witness in front of Congress in 1926 to promote a proposed bill that would make it illegal to practice seances in Washington, D.C. During the testimonial, he referred to Arthur Conan Doyle as one of the greatest dupes. Later that year, Houdini would die of a ruptured appendix, but before he gave up his own ghost, he made a pact with his wife Bess that he would try to escape the afterlife and communicate with her. 
but he also gave her a secret code that only the two of them knew, so that any medium who was lying about being able to speak to his spirit would immediately be revealed as a faker. After ten years of failed attempts, Bess Houdini held one last seance in 1936. Houdini didn't show up for that one either, and Bess stated, He has not come. I turn out the light. Of course, there's no shortage of people on basic cable television shows that claim to be able to speak with ghosts, and on those shows, people are often shocked at how accurate the medium is. However, it's entirely possible that rather than speaking with ghosts, these television personalities are using tricks in order to create the illusion that they have the power to speak to the great beyond. For example, if someone makes an appointment to talk to a medium, it's fairly simple for that medium to search the internet for information on that person, which will undoubtedly include obituaries. Those obituaries will reveal the relationship of the deceased to that person, as well as providing some details which could be thrown into the alleged reading. Following in Houdini's footsteps, in 2017, a woman named Susan Garbick planted a number of fake Facebook profile pages full of false information as bait for fraudulent psychics, and then attended a medium show. Sure enough, the medium told her that she had a dead twin brother named Andy who had succumbed to cancer, and that they grew up in Michigan, and that he had a girlfriend named Marta. But Susan didn't have a brother. The information the medium was claiming to be receiving from beyond the grave, he had actually received from an internet search, because he was repeating the false information that Susan had put up on Facebook. Mediums can also pull a trick called cold reading, where you don't actually know anything about your subjects before you begin, but you tease it out of them gradually by providing them incomplete information and allowing them to fill it in for you. For example, a medium might say, I'm seeing the letter M. Does that mean anything to you? At which point the subject might say that they had a loved one who died named Mike, or that their father died in March, or that they lived in Montreal. The medium then takes that bit of information and runs with it. If they find that they're getting into a dead end, or if they have contradicted themselves, or gotten in other kinds of trouble, the medium can simply say, Oh, I must be hearing from someone else now, and move to the next subject and start the whole process over again. When you watch one of these TV shows, notice how vague the mediums often are, particularly when they first start talking to someone. And why, if you could talk to the dead, would the dead communicate like this? If I was dead and could talk to my loved ones through a medium, I wouldn't say something like, Ask them about the letter F. I'd be way more specific. This could explain why none of the mediums that Bess Houdini went to could produce her husband. Cold reading wouldn't work on you if you were expecting to hear a specific secret phrase from your dead loved one as proof. Again, this doesn't prove that ghosts don't exist or that they can't talk to living humans, but it once again means that there are natural explanations for what we see from mediums that don't require supernatural abilities. And that brings us back to American inventor Thomas Edison and his spirit box. Unlike everything we've discussed so far, Edison claimed he wasn't looking at a dualistic interpretation of the world. Speaking to reporters, he stated that, I cannot be a party to the belief that spirits exist and can be seen under certain circumstances. The whole thing is so absurd. However, he did believe that there was a possibility of some aspect of a person surviving after death. The first law of thermodynamics states that no matter can be created or destroyed. Basically, all the matter in the universe that will ever exist was present already the moment after the Big Bang. All matter does is keep getting recycled into new forms. All of the matter in you, for example, has been in countless other plants and animals, and will become countless other plants and animals after you stop using it. 
And if you go back far enough, all of the material in all of us used to be parts of stars. Edison argued that life was similar to matter in that there was a specific amount of life energy in the universe, and it couldn't be created or destroyed, just shuffled around. What we think of as our personalities is composed of this proposed life force, and Edison suggested that it was possible that since this life force couldn't be created or destroyed, maybe it would hold together in some kind of cohesive fashion even after it left a physical body. To be honest, it sort of sounds to me like he's just still talking about soul or mind as a separate substance from physical matter, but he's just trying to put a more scientific-sounding spin on it. We don't have any plans or prototypes of the device, but based on what Edison told journalists, it sounds as though he was trying to build a kind of amplifier so that it could detect the slightest effort on the part of a disembodied personality and magnify it so it would be more easily detectable by our ears. His motivation for building the device was clear, as he said in an interview with Scientific American, I do hope that our personality survives. If it does, then my apparatus ought to be of some use. This is why I am now at work on the most sensitive apparatus I have ever undertaken to build, and I await the results with the keenest interest. And that's the crux of the biscuit right there. He was hoping that personality could survive death. I think that a lot of people hope for something like that, including myself. I would much rather that ghosts existed for three specific reasons. One, I think I'd be a great ghost. In, in a lot of ways, I think I'm probably better suited to being a ghost than a living person. Two, there are a lot of people that I love who have died. And the idea that I could talk to those people again, even for a moment, is a very pleasant thought. We move forward in time with the people we care about, but once they die, they stop moving forward, and they remain forever in the past. And each moment that passes, we get a little bit further away from those people, which is one of the worst parts of losing someone. If we could still talk to them somehow, then we wouldn't completely lose them, and we never would. And three, I think we deserve ghosts. One of the common threads across times and cultures is that someone's more likely to become a ghost when they die suddenly, or they've been wronged in some way, or they have unfinished business. Well, think of all the unfinished business the people of Hiroshima and Nagasaki had. Think of the people who were wronged in residential schools or concentration camps. Even the campus where Lee and I teach used to be an insane asylum, at which patients were chained up in the basement or experimented on with electricity and chemicals. The patients who died at that asylum were thrown into unmarked graves on the asylum grounds, and the buildings were assembled by free labor from the patients themselves. These places all deserve ghosts to remind us of what we've done and to encourage us not to continue to do these kind of things in the future. But there's a problem with wanting a particular thing to be true. It can lead to motivated reasoning rather than critical reasoning. When we want something to be true, our confirmation bias kicks in, and we become very willing to believe evidence that supports what we want to be true, and equally willing to disregard evidence that goes against what we want to be true. And ultimately, I think we want ghosts to be real. The alternative is much more frightening than any ghost could be. The possibility that death is final, and that once our bodies stop working, we can only live on in the memories of the people who remember us. And of course, all of those people's bodies will stop working at some point too. Because... For one of the same reasons I want there to be ghosts, I think it's unlikely that there are ghosts. If there were, why are these sites of historical horror not overflowing with specters? 
Dresden was firebombed in World War II. 25,000 people died horribly one night. If even a small percentage of those people felt irritated enough to stick around as a ghost, there should be a healthy population of phantoms in that city. There's other questions I have as well. For most of human history, from about 100,000 years ago to about 10,000 years ago, we existed as hunter-gathering societies. I guess my point is, where are all the caveman ghosts? Surely in all that time there must have been some of our ancient relatives who were struck down in their primes by a woolly mammoth before they had been able to finish their epic cave painting mural. And why would humans be the only ones who leave ghosts behind? After decades of whaling, you would think that the ocean would be crawling with massive ghost whales taking revenge on ships. So far, we don't have good evidence of ghosts. We do have plenty of evidence that there are people who are willing to take advantage of our desire for ghosts through scams and hoaxes. Which ultimately is one more reason I wish there were ghosts. So anyone who tries to rip off someone in the midst of grief and loss can find themselves alone in a dark room one night, hearing the sound of shuffling footsteps and whispering coming down an empty hallway towards them.